Welcome to the She Built This podcast, where we are sharing the stories of professionals and entrepreneurs who are on a mission to create the new norm by following their dreams and making them a reality. I'm your host, Emily Aborn, and together we are inspiring, growing, and giving you the tools you need to bring ideas to life so you can build whatever this means for you. Hi, welcome back. Happy April. I have a fascinating conversation for you to sit in on today. And for the first episode of the month of April, I'm going to go ahead and kick off a little bit of a new format here on the She Built This podcast, which I think you're really going to like. Thanks to one of my great friends, Alicia Galati of Galati Media, host of the Listeners to Leads podcast. I recently underwent a extensive podcast audit of the She Built This show, and I did this because it's really important for me to keep showing up, giving you high value content, and bringing the very best of the best here on the podcast. One of the things that Alicia pointed out to me was that the length of my intros and how long it takes to actually get into the actual interviews themselves, you know, I'm always saying like, without further ado, but then I just keep on a doing and a doing and a doing further and further. So here's what we're going to do from here on out. We're going to skip right to the chase and dive in with my guests straight from the top. And then if you want, you can stay till the end for the last two minutes or so of the show where I give you Emily's hot takes. Here we go. Let's see how you feel about it. How many of you stick around for the two-minute breakdown at the end? So for once, without further ado, I want to introduce today's guest, Dr. Andrea Bonier, a licensed clinical psychologist on the faculty of Georgetown University and the best-selling author of Detox Your Thoughts, Quit Negative Self-Talk for Good and Discover the Life You've Always Wanted. Dr. Andrea is the host of the Mental Health Talk and Advice podcast, Baggage Check, based on the mental health brand that she's built at the Washington Post. She also writes a blog for Psychology Today, which has been read more than 25 million times, and she has several popular courses on work-life balance and cognitive skills on the LinkedIn Learning platform. She appears regular in national regularly in national media, including contributing frequently to CNN's The Lead with Jake Tapper. And a a big thanks to my husband's cousin, Bill, for the nudge to reach out to Andrea and connect with her and go ahead and make the ask to have her on the She Built This podcast in the first place. Because when I first heard Dr. Andrea, uh, I heard her on a podcast actually as it related to a topic relevant to both Bill and I, I sent it to him. I said, I want her to be a guest on my show. And he said, go for it. So I did. Once again, the reminder that you never truly know until you ask, and you never know what the ripple effect of the action you take will be. So there we go. We did it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Andrea. Hi, Dr. Andrea, and welcome to the She Built This podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am very excited. I know you know the long story of like how I found you and then asked you to be on my show, but um, I really, really appreciate you taking time and being here with me. Yes, well, it's my pleasure. Um, so to get started, this is a fascination I have with many mental health professionals, but can you just tell us a little bit about like when you started to get interested in this and what, how you got started in your field? Sure. 
You know, my childhood best friend growing up wanted to be a therapist, and I thought it sounded pretty much like the worst job in the world. I thought, why would you want to take on other people's problems? You know, we all have enough of our own sitting around and listening to other people's problems. Sounds awful. Uh, but the irony was, you know, she ended up having nothing to do with the mental health field as she grew up. And I ended up just falling in love basically with psychology because I took intro psych, you know, like a lot of people in college their first semester. I didn't take any in high school or anything like that. And I just thought that it was fascinating how we could figure out more insight into ourselves, how we do what we do to understand ourselves better in relationships. I still didn't necessarily think that I wanted to be a therapist. That took a couple of years. I did some volunteer work. I realized that maybe I had the temperament for it and that I really valued being able to have a role in people's lives where they confided in me. And I got interested in psych research and the rest was history. I decided that it was exactly the type of career that really suited me just in terms of my academic interests, in terms of my passion for helping people. And also I knew that I could kind of build the kind of life that I wanted, I think was really important to me, that I knew I'd have some flexibility if I became a licensed clinical psychologist in particular, that I could be able to build my own schedule, that I wouldn't necessarily have a nine to five where I'm going into one place all day. And so it's worked out really beautifully. I love that. And I recently told uh, some family members that my party trick is diagnosing people. So <laughs> I think I think I might have uh, followed your calling in a different way. <laughs> no, I also love her to psych and sociology. And I'm totally with you, like understanding what drives us as human beings, what makes us different, but also what makes us similar is just mm -hmm. super, super fascinating. And yes. that was one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. Um, I listened to a episode that you did on the Very Well Mind podcast with Amy Morin about mm -hmm. difficult people. And as an entrepreneur, as a family member, as a human being, I deal with a lot of difficult people. And as I say that, I know that I am also a difficult person at times. <laughs> um, so I, I was like, I, I need to have this conversation with you because I think that it can benefit all of us to understand a little bit more about what's going on when these things do happen, when we do encounter mm -hmm. quote unquote difficult people, and then where, where, where we can take responsibility and how yes. we can get like better at interacting in those situations. So to start, if you don't mind, mm -hmm. um, I'd love for you to share like the different types of difficult people that we might encounter in the world so that when we're in those interactions, we can start kind of saying like, oh, that's what's happening here. Sure. Well, there's no shortage of different types of difficult people. You know, it's interesting. I've given talks on this in the workplace, you know, how to manage difficult people and difficult conversations. And every single time I give a talk, it feels like I hear a new spin on, well, what about the person who does this? And I think, isn't it sad that, that there's a very wide variety of difficult people? And so I think it might help to sort of categorize them. I think there are the people where the conflict is absolutely overt. It's in your face. So these are the people who are kind of violating your boundaries right then and there, or they're exploding at you. They're not managing their emotions well. So mm. they're in the moment not being kind. They're not being patient. Maybe they're very narcissistic and they're just stepping all over you. Maybe they're bullying you. You know, I hear 
I hear stories of bullying in the workplace all the time. There's the know-it-alls, you know, there's the people who just, they're very obvious in what they're doing and they're creating conflict, whether they intend to or not, but the conflict is right there. And so I kind of think of that whole category as the people who are going to really make you have to act in the moment because they're escalating things right there. And then there's a whole group of people where they're creating some sort of conflict, but it's a little hidden right now. So maybe they're passive aggressive, maybe they're super competitive and they're always undermining you, but they never quite say anything that you can really call them out on. Maybe they're gaslighting you. You know, this is something that's gotten a lot of attention over the past few years. People who really try to make you feel like your perspective is just crazy and that you're in the wrong. And in reality, they've got a skewed view. There are people who just lie and you don't realize it at the time until later, you know, oh my goodness, they told me something that they knew was untrue. Um, So that's kind of the hidden hidden conflict group of people, I think we can see it as. And then there's lots of people where they're stirring the pot and there's going to be a conflict. You just don't realize it yet. You know, maybe they're really, really sucking energy out of you and you don't notice it at first, or they're taking advantage of you, but it's not so obvious, or they're not going to be there for you. You know, a whole group of difficult people, as I see it, Mm. are the people who fade, the people who, yeah, say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to pick you up here. I'm going to come to your birthday party. And they just disappear. They ghost you. Or there's the people who sort of stir the pot, right? They they don't directly involve themselves in the conflict, but they egg you on to be angry at somebody else. So there's so many varieties of difficult people. And I think when we think about managing it, we have to recognize Is it the type of situation where it is demanding a reaction from me in the moment, as in, you know, I need to know what to say to this person who said something really hurtful all the time? Or is it the type of thing where I need a long-term strategy for how to stave off the conflict that's going to come, or maybe a little bit of both? The good thing is, as you were going through that list, uh, the overt conflict, I'm like, okay, I don't have anyone in that category right now. <laughs> but then <laughs> as you kept, yeah, but then as you kept going, I'm like, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess that brings me to my next question. Like, why does it benefit us to be really strong in how we're handling these situations and how we're approaching dealing with difficult people? Yeah, it's so important because when we set good habits of dealing with difficult people, it makes it easier on us the next time. You know, it's like, okay, I have a script for how Mm -hmm. to deal with this. It doesn't take us up as much of our energy. It doesn't stress us out as much afterwards because we've established some sort of boundary or we've established some sort of strategy for dealing with this. And the truth is, you know, relationships, they are a wonderful part of life, but they also are one of the parts of life that can get us the most down. And so when we can prioritize figuring out ways to deal in healthy ways with relationship conflicts, we gain back so much. We gain back time. We gain back mental clarity. We gain back self-confidence because we feel like, hey, I managed that okay and the world didn't stop, right? And so we're less afraid and it just helps us. It just helps us keep stuff in our toolbox. Like, oh, I've seen this before. You know, I've had a coworker take credit for everything that I did before and, and I know how to deal with it calmly and effectively. And so it gives us so much time and energy and just mental calm back into our lives. I 
I think um, if you don't mind, I'd like to give you two examples that jump out at me that I mm-hmm. hear all the time for myself and also in the in the entrepreneurial space. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to like tackle those two and then any other keys, tips that you have around handling some of these other situations. But the two that I hear often mm-hmm. are um, gaslighting. And I'm going to say that that might be from that could look a, a number of different ways, but gaslighting. And then um, I hear a lot about people ghosting more and yes. more and more often and just mm-hmm. lack of follow through, lack of saying what they said they were going to do. Mm-hmm. So maybe explain how you'd, how you'd handle those two specific situations and then other ones that maybe you hear are, are common. Sure. The gaslighting and the fading, I think, you know, these are such part of our vernacular now precisely because they've become so common. And honestly, what's concerning is that the more common this behavior becomes, the more people think that it's okay to do it, right? Because if they had it done to them, then they think, well, that's just what people do and they're more likely to do it. So starting with the gaslighting, I think it's really important that, first of all, you try to understand maybe where the person is coming from, because there are some people who just have very skewed views of stuff and it's coming from insecurity and they're not attempting to actually manipulate you, but they see things totally different. So I think whenever you deal with difficult people, it's important to just get a baseline of what might be going on for them? What's their perspective? Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to agree with it. It doesn't mean you're going to let them off the hook for bad behavior, but it's actually going to help you figure out how to proceed. So for instance, a person who's kind of gaslighting you about whether or not, let's say it's, um, you know, there's a colleague at work and they're constantly sort of undermining your ideas, making you feel like you're the one that's slowing down this project, making you feel like it's your fault that deadlines aren't being missed. And meanwhile, they're not seeing the fact that you're the one keeping the ship afloat. In that case, think about what's going on for them. Are they truly trying to manipulate me here? Are they truly trying to undermine me? Or are they themselves really stressed out about this project and it's as simple as they want somebody to blame? Because those are going to have slightly different plans of attack because there's a big difference between a colleague who just isn't being their best self because they're stressed out and they have the insight into that maybe later on and they apologize versus somebody whose MO is always to just blame other people. Right. And so have a conversation with them once you sort of can have an understanding with yourself of what your expectations are. I mean, difficult conversations, the most important thing is to know what's realistic in terms of your expectation and don't expect the moon and stars. So pick a private time. You know, a lot of people get so anxious about these situations that they call the person out at a meeting or they escalate things at a time that it's not going to go well. Pick a private time where the person's going to be less likely to be on the defensive and just say your perspective. This is where the I statements come into play. You know, the old cliche of couples therapy that instead of saying, you know, you did this, I can't believe, why did you do this? You say, I felt really upset when this happened. And getting the person to empathize with you a little bit. So you can say to your colleague, you know, I wanted to talk to you. I'm getting really stressed out about this project because I feel like I'm doing a lot 
And it feels like there's a disconnect between the two of us because I know that it seems to you that I am delaying this project or that my work isn't up to par. And I wondered if we could go through some specifics to come to an understanding here of how to get this back on track, because I feel like we're seeing things differently. And I feel in a way like I'm doing all I can and I'm getting resistance. So I want to figure out how we can get past this. And being able to actually hold out a end goal for the person too. You know, I want to get this project back on track. I want to be able to get past this. I, At the end of the day, here's what I'm after. That at least gives them some idea of maybe what's reasonable, what's realistic, and maybe they can get on board for that too. Now, again, this is where hey, if you've already figured out this person is a high conflict person who just wants to stir drama, they might say, well, sure, but I do think it's your fault. And, you know, they're not willing to give an inch and that's okay. At least you know what you have tried. And then it might be time to get somebody else involved for external support in terms of the project. But on the other hand, sometimes people just getting it all laid out on the table Somebody talking in a vulnerable way who's not immediately blaming them, but who is proposing a solution, you'd be surprised at how many times even difficult people will be like, all right, well, yeah, you know, I want to get this project done too, so let's figure something out. And then it it doesn't turn out perfectly, but it's a much smoother path from there. Yeah, I think it really does disarm people when we take responsibility, right? When we say, I feel this way and mm-hmm. we, and we own up to whatever our end of it is first. So yes. I really like that because I think that it can help in, in some situations, not mm-hmm. all. Some people think, yeah, it is your fault. <laughs> right. You're like, wait, no. Right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, some people will always have a vested interest in placing blame on others and it doesn't matter how they have to contort the situation, that's what they're doing, whether it's insecurity, whether it's a long-term strategy to exploit people. I mean, there's going to be a situation where somebody just is unmovable in a situation like this, but I wouldn't say it's the majority of the time. And honestly, those are the folks that in a workplace or in a family, you tend to see this pattern with over and over again. So that's the type of situation where at least you might have some support in others. It's like everybody already knows this coworker is particularly difficult. And so it everybody knows it's not your fault. Okay, let's talk about ghosting and me help me save myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think it depends on what role you want this person to still have in your life. So, you know, when your best friend is constantly fading, but you also know that you want to keep up this friendship and she's somebody that you love, I think that conversation has to be more realistic with yourself too about Am I expecting too much or is this the type of situation where I need to view the friendship differently and she shouldn't be the one that I count on to water my plants when I'm away or whatever it might be. You know, a lot of people, I think part of the struggle is actually having to put a relationship in a different category. You know, like I like, oh, I love my sister so much. She should be the one to watch my dog when I'm gone. But it's like, okay, you might love your sister so much, but she has blanked and screwed up the plans three times when you tried to get her to watch her dog. So now it's time to hire a dog sitter. And that doesn't take away your love for your sister. And, you know, then your sister says, well, hey, how come I'm not watching your dog this time? And then you have the conversation. You say, you know, 
I love you. The last few times it's added stress because I know things changed at the last minute. And right when I was getting ready to leave, I wasn't sure exactly what the arrangements were. So I thought it's better for our relationship if I hire somebody so that we don't have that stress hanging between us. And you are always welcome to come and visit the dog. You know, and that is a very simple fix because it's a matter of you adjusting your own expectations that look, if this person is a fading type, I can sort of adjust the relationship accordingly. On the other hand, there are plenty of times where fading is just not okay. And the person has a role in your life where it needs to really be seen as unacceptable. You need to kind of step this up, you know, and that's when you can have that same sort of vulnerable conversation and say, hey, I was really sad that you didn't show up for my birthday happy hour. You know, I have to be honest. I feel like this has been happening a lot lately where I'm excited to see you and I haven't ended up seeing you and I was hoping we could talk about it. And, you know, it could be the person is going through depression or something on their end, or they're struggling with social anxiety, or they're a very bad planner and they're saying yes to too many things. And then they have to drop one at the last moment. could be any number of things, but at least you've opened up the conversation and you've made it so that they understand that they have an impact on you. So many of these conversations with difficult people, it's about helping the other person see that their actions have consequences that are harmful because they might not know or they might not be willing to see it at first until you bring it up. And so with that conversation, you know, you talk about, hey, it may be sad. There I was celebrating my birthday and you weren't there. Or if it's just, you know, more logistical things, you can say, you know, I feel like sometimes when we make plans, I don't know if they're going to actually happen or not. And then that puts me, you know, maybe it's not a sad thing, but, you know, I need you to know, like I blocked off my schedule for lunch last Wednesday and I even moved a meeting and it, it was kind of a bummer that I did that. And I wasn't even sure if I was going to see you. And I've got to say, I can't keep doing this because I feel like I need to respect my time too. You know, and again, I think it's a matter of opening up the conversation, especially if it's with a friend, you know, where these are sort of personal get together types of things, like you mentioned, being able to say, let's talk about this because then you're opening a door. And, you know, what if the person says, hey, you know, I'll be honest, I'm really struggling lately. Like, it's hard for me to get out of bed. I'm so stressed out and overwhelmed that you're the easiest thing to cancel because I know you'll forgive me. And I'm sorry about that. And it's not fair to you. But I have to say, I'm really struggling here. And I, I and that's where it's coming from. At least you've already opened the door and then you can have a real conversation. And then the solution there is, OK, you know, let me see things differently and be there for you on your terms and also not have to rely on you so much. So we're not going to plan a lunch in the middle of the day and that's okay. You know, but I do think people need to be, I don't want to say called out on their behavior because that sounds so aggressive, but that's really what it is. I think people need to understand that they have an impact on other people. And I do find that the sort of wave of ghosting Although I empathize so much with the people having to do it for mental health reasons or whatever it might be, I find that it's really creating a lot of hurt. And, you know, if you're struggling with things that might make you less reliable or more ghosting, I think we have to come to a reckoning where we kind of open up to that and we kind of say, you know what, I'm not going to say yes to this event because I know I'm probably going to end up not going. Um, I think what you what you just touched on and this, I mean, this conversation as a whole, I don't know if you read the book, The Four Agreements, 
but Mm -hmm. it reminds me of one of the agreements, which is do not take things personally. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's a good thing for us to remember when we are dealing with others, no matter who they are, difficult or or lovely, Um, but just not to take things personally because we really don't know the story that's happening on the other side. Mm -hmm. And starting with a conversation, starting with that vulnerability is a way to help you to realize what is happening on the other side. And probably the answer is not going to be that it's you. You know, Mm -hmm. they're probably not ghosting you because it's you. It's probably actually because you make them feel really safe and comfortable that they can cancel on you without you know, Mm -hmm. without having to worry. Um, So I think calling their attention to how that does hurt you and impact you is really vital because it helps say, okay, now how can I help you? You know, what would help you in that? Right. And for sure. And it's also important to recognize that you have the right to your feelings too. And I think not taking something personally doesn't have to mean that you're not upset. Agreed. But you can also know that maybe this isn't about me at all. Because the truth is, I mean, there's no use sugarcoating it. When people are going through difficult things in their own life, they often become worse friends. And we don't want to make them feel guilty about that. But I think it doesn't make sense to also pretend like those effects aren't happening. And that's where the friends can say, look, you know, I'm really bummed that she's flaking out all the time and it, and it does upset me, but I'm going to widen my perspective here and I'm going to try to empathize and have compassion for the fact that there's a reason that she's going through something and it's not really about me and I can have compassion. You know, I see this all the time, for instance, with people who are trying to get pregnant and they flake out and don't go to their best friend's baby shower because it's just too upsetting or mm-hmm. things like that. And I think it's important to recognize, again, it's not about you per se, even though you're allowed to have your own feelings about it. That's a great That's a great addition to that for agreement. You should uh, get in touch with the author. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. What are some other circumstances that you see and maybe highlight uh, when you have this conversation? You know, I think the energy sucks are a big, difficult, awkward conversation because oftentimes people are not doing this intentionally and they would probably feel horrified if they knew that they were really, really stressing somebody out. But I think what happens here is maybe in a friendship where... It is kind of an imbalance over a long period of time. You know, you're giving so, so much and you're feeling so drained. And I think, again, this is important. You know, when somebody's going through a depression or they're going through a divorce or they've lost somebody in their life or they're just struggling, it's our job as close friends to have patience and to understand that the reciprocity is going to be out of whack for a while because we need to be there for them in a way they can't be for us. And I think that's just a fact of life. But what I'm talking about here year is sort of the chronic situations where it's gone on like this for years or the person is a constant, constant, constant complainer, but they never do anything about it. They never take your advice and you feel like they're just kind of using you as a sounding board, not, you know, out of malice, but that they are draining, draining your energy. And then one day you think about the fact that they haven't asked you how you've been doing for two months, right? <laughs> and so, and it's just getting this situation where you know that you don't really look forward to seeing them. And I got to be honest, at that point, it's important to be realistic that, you know, it's not fair to them either if you are starting to get so resentful. Because oftentimes people are afraid to have a conversation about it, but 
then when reality hits, they're like, well, I'm just so fed up with them. I want to ghost them. It's like, okay, well, that's not better. You know, the conversations can be awkward, (laughs) but actually having the conversation is a kinder thing to do than to ghost them. So I think in that case, remember that it actually could be doing them some good to understand that this is the effect that they're having on people. And so once again, you choose a time where they're not going to be on the defensive. You have a kind tone of voice. You use I statements. You say, you know, for instance, the case that I was just sort of referencing that example, you would say something like, you know, I have to be honest with you. Sometimes it's really hard for me to hear you complain about your job so much because I feel like nothing changes and I feel like I'm not being helpful to you. And I feel like I've tried to give advice as to how to maybe help support you to do something differently or to encourage you to get a new job. But I feel like I'm useless here because nothing has seemed to change and you haven't seemed to be receptive to my advice. And, you know, I understand if you want to just talk about your job a lot, but it's tough for me sometimes because I feel like we're trapped here and I'm not doing you any good. You know, and I think that's a good way of starting those kinds of conversations because basically the uh, point that you're making is that you want to be helpful to them too, but you're reaching the point where it's not being helpful. And you, you know, the thing you don't necessarily have to say, but is under the surface there is like, I, I don't like these conversations. So eventually it's going to push me away. Um, all right. I'm sure as some people are listening, they're like, uh Oh, am I the difficult person? (laughs) Is she talking about me? Um, myself not excluded. So (laughs) yes. And I know I'm difficult in certain ways too. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was going to ask like, how do we know when we are being the difficult person? And like, I almost want to say like, how can we stop it before we get too, (laughs) we get too embroiled in it? Yeah. Being willing to ask the question is so important. You know, I always get to the point in some of my talks about this where it's kind of a joke, but I look around the audience and I say, you know, some of you are exactly the, or at least doing the exact behaviors that we're talking about. That's what the statistics say, right? I mean, if we're all encountering difficult people with some frequency, then if you're in a room of 200 people, there's a chunk of difficult people in there. But I think it's important to think about maybe not being so all or none. So first of all, it's very threatening for any of us to think that we are difficult people, but let's all recognize that sometimes we do behaviors in relationships that are not helpful, that are not functional, that might not be as compatible passionate as they could be, that might not be as patient, that make things more difficult on the other person. And so first of all, ask yourself, you know, what are some of my habits that maybe are hard to take? What are some of the things that I do at times that I wouldn't really want done to me? What kind of patterns do I see in my work relationships, my romantic relationships, my family relationships, my friend relationships? Do I see patterns? Do some of my relationships start to end around the same time? Mm. Do people tend to say the same thing about me, maybe in a joking manner? Oh, you're so, you know, critical or, or whatever. But maybe if more than one person has said that, it's time for me to look at it. Or do I start feeling the same way about people? over time. I get frustrated at them for the same reasons. And maybe at some point it's because I'm a difficult person in the sense that I have very unrealistic expectations and I'm always sort of trying to perfect the people I'm around. I think it's really a matter of being vulnerable and looking at patterns and saying, I don't, it doesn't have to mean that I'm a difficult person per se, but I think all of us have patterns of behavior here and there 
that aren't as functional as they should be. And so if you're willing to open yourself up to that, you can start to notice. Certainly in some environments, they give us feedback pretty clearly, you know, like in some work environments, hey, here's my review. And my boss for three years has said that I have difficulty in these situations doing my best work, well, maybe there's something interpersonal going on there. Or maybe I have the same fight with my brother all the time, and maybe he's kind of onto something, even if I think that he's the one being difficult. And so it's a matter of being vulnerable enough to actually look at it, because that's the toughest challenge. We have a vested interest, most of us, in not finding fault with ourselves in a lot of these ways. And so we might be closed off. And the other thing to remember is that You might be a difficult person in certain situations where others are being difficult too. So it's we're not trying to place blame and say, oh, you are the culprit. (laughs) You know, we're not saying that. This isn't a court of law. We're just trying to look at the overall dynamic. So it could be that when people start to escalate the situation and they're the ones being difficult, well, then that brings out something in you where you make things so much worse. You know, I'm always talking to my kids about that. It's like, Neither of you have to be right or wrong, but each of you definitely layered something on here and did your part. Oh my gosh, totally. I've been friends with a person and friends with another person and I bring them together and it's like oil and water. I'm like, wait a minute, Mm -hmm. this doesn't make any sense. I like you both. (laughs) Yes. Oh, that's so common. That's so common because that's a whole nother topic that's so fascinating, how we become different people relative to the people that we're in relationships or friendships with, right? Yeah. Like around your one friend, you're known as the organized planner who's got everything on top of things, whereas your other friend is so organized and such a planner that you're known as the slacker, right? We see ourselves through these different lenses depending on who we're with. And I think sometimes it means that there can be this crash and burn scenario when different friends come together because your identity is sort of confused in that sense. Like if you're one thing to one person and one thing to another person, and then they don't end up even having anything in common because you're a different person around the two of them and they bring out different things in you. Yeah. I just think that that, um, that chemistry between human beings can totally make you more prone to finding someone difficult versus somebody else. So yes. Yeah. Agreed on that. Absolutely. Um, What are, what are like, I would say that resilience and patience, those are just two words that kind of came to my mind when I was personally thinking about these kind of situations. Mm-hmm. What are some ways you think that you can build resilience and patience when you're dealing with challenges like this? Oh, yeah. It's all about the pause. It's all about rehearsing a strategy where in the moment you can pause and you can notice what's going on for you. I mean, this is the essence of mindfulness, which everybody talks about, but I think it's harder to put into practice. But it's really important to pause because so many times when we're in a difficult situation or with a difficult interaction with a difficult person, we go into autopilot. You know, we don't think through our actions, we make it worse, or we have a knee-jerk reaction of taking it personally and we get more upset, or we say something that we regret, or we just stir the pot further. So think about the pause and think about your internal reactions. All of us have them, no matter how zen we are. All of us have some sort of little triggers and maybe our jaw gets tight or we clench our fists or our stomach 
sort of flips over in knots and we get nervous. So we just want the situation to be over. So we avoid it. Or we have a tendency to speak before we think about what we're about to be saying, or we have a tendency to change our body language into really angry body language. And so to improve our patience, we really have to insert these little mindful pauses where we literally take a few seconds before we speak or we take a breath and we notice our breath and we notice that our body's getting hot and tight and upset and we do what we can to bring that down. Maybe it's some slow breathing in through our nose, out through our mouth. Maybe it is, I'm going to roll my neck a little bit. Maybe it's, I'm going to close my eyes for five seconds and just visualize something calming to me that I know is going to help me be my best self in this situation. And that's going to, in time, become much more automatic. So we can actually build in that pause to the point where we actually make a habit of being more patient in situations because we don't go on autopilot. I mean, the essence of impatience really is that we don't want to pause. We want to act. We want to run right towards this reaction. And oftentimes that reaction is not thought through very well if we're being impatient. And and over time, this builds resilience too, because we're not making the individual situations worse. And we're actually, with resilience, really importantly, focusing on our own self-care too. Like, okay, I am really upset here after this interaction. I can see it in my chest. I need to go for a walk. I need to get some outdoor time. I need to call a friend and laugh. I need to get some exercise. I need to listen to some music because the noticing with the pause can also help illuminate a solution. And honestly, the most resilient people are the ones who don't view self-care as a sign of weakness. You know, they're not the ones who say, I need to take a break because I'm really overwhelmed and that's bad. What's wrong with me? They're the ones that say, I need to take a break because I'm really overwhelmed and I'm going to do it and I'm going to come back stronger. Oh my gosh. I, as a person that moves very quickly through life, (laughs) I love that (laughs) reminder. Really, really love it. And I love that the reminder, like I would even say self-care is is not something that you need to do only when you get into the state of overwhelm, but it's something yes. to do like along the way so that yes. you don't find yourself in that state of overwhelm. Absolutely. Or limit the amount of times, I should say, that you find yourself in that state. <laughs> exactly. People misunderstand self-care so much. And in fact, on Baggage Check, we had a whole podcast episode about the myths of self-care and all the ways we misunderstand it. And I think you're absolutely right. The most important thing is to remember that it's kind of the unsexy everyday stuff, right? People think, oh, self-care, I'm going to take a weekend at a spa because I'm completely burnt out. No, self-care is the day-to-day. I am going to go to sleep 10 minutes earlier. I am going to set this boundary with my friend. I am going to move my body some so that I get some stress out. That's the actual true self-care that we all need to engage in. You know, it's fun to say, oh, for self-care, I'm going to go get a facial, but that's not really the sustained everyday stuff that's going to make the most difference. Um, so my next question is along the lines of self-care, and then I'll and then I'll wrap it up just by giving you an opportunity to share how people can hear your podcast and find you. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently had an experience where I 
had a, a I met with a therapist on telehealth mm-hmm. and she showed up very unprofessionally to the point where like let's let's I'll oh, no. I'll just be obvious about what I was sharing about I was sharing about an anxiety I had around like vehicle travel and she then proceeded to tell me a story about her daughter who had a near fatal car accident and I was like I feel like this is not okay for a person oh. who's telling you about vehicle anxiety I hate hearing so, stories like that I'm so sorry it's, it, see so I've had a wonderful therapist and I I know what a wonderful therapist is, mm-hmm. but here's what I don't know. What are the ways to choose and find a great therapist? And then also, like, how many kind of strikes do you give them? Like, do you stick with it if you don't get a good vibe on that first visit? How do you sort of gauge the rapport in in that first visit and where do you take it from there? Yeah. I mean, to keep the strikes baseball metaphor going, when somebody, you know, swings and it doesn't even look like a baseball or softball swing, but rather a golf (laughs) swing, that's when you're like, we don't need a second and third strike here. I think some things are so egregious, like the example that you provided. I wouldn't ever advocate giving that person another chance, honestly. Now, I think in most cases, it does take maybe a session or so to see if there's a fit. And that's that's part of how you find a therapist that's right for you, is you be willing to say, can we have a consultation? You know, Can we have a first session to sort of try and for fit? Because honestly, it's so idiosyncratic that that sort of alchemy between therapist and client. There are definitely therapists across the spectrum in terms of expertise and skill and experience. And there are some that are just really, really excellent. But at the end of the day, it's still a personal fit. And I get asked by people all the time, hey, can you help me find somebody? Can you recommend somebody for you know my sister or my friend or whatever? And I'm always willing to help in the search, but I always emphasize there's no one magic name that's going to be right for everybody because at the end of the day, it's two human beings in the room and it's two human beings that, you know, there might be subtle, subtle differences in, in terms of their style or just the way they interact, or you want somebody that has a life's experience of, you know, being older versus you want somebody who really will understand what you're talking about because you're younger and you want them to be younger. All those types of things are completely valid. And so I'd say, you know, first of all, you start with some of the directories. You look closely. What is this person's experience? What are their credentials? What do they list as their style? What do they list as their expertise? Do they have a specialty in what I'm going through? Are they truly credentialed in their field? You know, because I hate to say it, but there are some sort of pseudo therapy types of situations where it's like you got to know what you're getting. I mean, for instance, you know, there are all kinds of fields where somebody might have some sort of a counseling role, but just know that there's a difference between a professional with some sort of licensing accreditation versus somebody who's sort of trying to maybe coach you, but doesn't seem to actually have any training and that kind of thing. Um, And then, you know, find out what their policies are. Can I get a consultation? You know, I always, always offer a complimentary consultation when I have openings because I couldn't purport to be the absolute best person for you unless I hear what you're going through and we mutually agree. So my consultation involves hearing where the person's coming from. What are their hopes? What are their goals? How would we work together? What concerns do they have about the process? What would it look like? What is my style? You know, some people want the type of therapist who's giving them constant homework. It's very quantitative. You know, every day I'm going to be journaling and reading my level of anxiety. Other people say, oh my God, that'd be a horrible experience. I don't want a therapist who gives me homework, you know. 
And so it really depends on what you're looking for and how that therapist can work. Because honestly, that's the most important thing is once you get the basics underway, you know, what's their, what's their fee? Do they take my insurance? Do they have the credentials I want? Do they have experience in what I need? Then you get into that human nitty gritty. How are they in the room? Do I feel understood? Do I feel heard? Do they feel empathetic? Do I feel like this person can help me? How do they respond to the questions that I have? That's where we're going to get into some really important stuff about the fit. Yeah, so it's a lot of trial and error. <laughs> it is. And it's like I choosing wish it a doctor wasn't so much. But you know, I do have concerns about you know, we have a mental health crisis. We have a shortage yeah. of providers. We need all the providers we can get. People have to wait a really long time to see someone and it's devastating. But I also am so concerned when I hear stories of people that just do not seem to have the real solid background or they do something inappropriate. I get really concerned about that. Yeah, that must be really frustrating. Okay, here's a totally, uh, and then I promise I'll wrap up. Um, Do you see, as you said, we are in a mental health crisis. Do you see more people entering your profession in order to fill that need? That's the hope. There's definitely more interest, I think, more conversations about mental health and the needs for mental health and how that is an issue that is more stark than ever before. Whether or not it's actually translating into people being able to enter the field is something being studied because there's still a ton of barriers. You know, for instance, there's still all kinds of barriers, not only to getting help, but to being somebody who can then be the helper, you know, graduate school and student loans and, you know, all those types of things, they're not as accessible to everyone as they should be. And the financial aspect or the people who can't do it because of family commitments and it takes years. And of course, there are many different ways to become a therapist. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, but there's everybody else under the sun too. There are, um, you know, there are counselors, there are marriage and family counselors, there are social workers, all that involve, you know, different levels of degree that take fewer years. But I do think we're going to see over the next couple of years, have we really been able to make the changes that we need? Because something's got to give. We need more highly trained people. We need changes in the delivery of services so that insurance actually covers what it should for people getting the help they need, which is going to actually help the therapists as well. It's going to help people enter into the field because if people don't want to enter in the field because they have so many years of graduate school loans and insurance is telling them that, you know, their reimbursement per session, they might as well go and work at a hotel. It's not going to work, right? Uh, yes. And I've also seen a lot of, I think during this time, a lot of people switching to a cash practice, which I can't blame yeah. them for because insurance companies are just not paying them appropriately. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's hope, I mean, this is something that AI cannot replace. (laughs) I hope so. I'm concerned about that, to be honest. I mean, I know that there are exciting ways that technology can help with mental health and different apps that will prompt you for different types of mood journaling and all those types of things. I am concerned, though, about the future of maybe people imagining that AI could take the place of a therapist, but we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. Yeah. So if you're listening and you feel like this is calling to you, (laughs) go out out there and start getting your education. (laughs) Yes, we need more good people for sure. 
Um, all right. How can people find and connect with you online as well as hear your podcast? And I'll make sure that any links you mention I put in the show notes. Wonderful. Yes. So I am at DetoxYourThoughts.com. Detox Your Thoughts is my most recent book. It uses the principles of acceptance and commitment therapy to help address negative self-talk and anxiety. So DetoxYourThoughts.com will lead you to me. I'm also online on Instagram as Dr. Andrea Bonier. There's also my uh, my podcast Instagram is Baggage Check Podcast. Um, and the podcast is called Baggage Check Mental Health Talk and Advice. We have new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. We just launched November 1st. So we're a few months in and we're having a blast. It's getting a really, really good response. And it's just been wonderful. We've talked about all kinds of things from pyramid schemes to postpartum depression. We have guests. We have advice. So I'd love for folks to join me there too. I love your podcast. And I also love that at the beginning, you always put a joke about like what the baggage check is. Like this is not about your bags. This is not about your luggage at the airport. Yes. People ended up really loving that. It started as kind of a goofy thing because way back when I did baggage check at the Washington Post, every now and then people would join the live chat and they would say, oh, I thought this was about travel. (laughs) So I was like, for the podcast, I should say, you know, this is just right from the beginning. This is not about luggage or travel. And then that led to all kinds of fun. Like, what else is it not about? Well, it's also not about antique ear horns. And it's also not about whether ZZ plants and ZZ top are the same same thing. So yeah, we have fun with that in the very beginning. Yeah, it's fun. Thank you so much for your time and for being here. It was a true pleasure. And hopefully this will help us all to deal with some of the difficult people in our lives and also recognize when we are the difficult person. Or as Taylor Swift says, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. Yes. Well, Emily, it's been wonderful to join you. This was my pleasure. And I love your podcast too. And I'm just so grateful that you took the time to talk today. Thank you. Yay, you stayed. Hi, welcome to the Emily's Hot Takes section of the She Built This podcast. I'm going to use this spot at the end of episodes to decompress with you one-to-one for a couple minutes, tell you a story sometimes, and offer any takeaways that just like really stuck out to me in our conversation or ways that maybe we can apply this stuff even more. You might also be privy to secrets before they are exposed to the rest of the world if you're a loyal listener. So let me tell you, this is the spot to be. Uh, You can consider yourself one of the special ones if you're sticking around. So I just loved Dr. Andrea's calming energy and how knowledgeable she is without being judgmental when it comes to dealing with difficult people and situations in our lives and having those conversations. And I will say that this is one of the things that the conversation really challenged me in is to speak up. When someone is doing something that's hurtful or that is offensive to you, it might be like hella uncomfortable to have that conversation, but having it is paramount. And I tend to not do this. I tend to not voice things. I don't usually confront things. I just kind of like let them sort themselves out. But this is really the reminder for me and and hopefully also for you to really voice those concerns and those feelings when you have them. And in doing this, I also loved Dr. Andrea's reminder to first check in and get really clear on like what you're experiencing, but also be able to consider their perspective as well. 
This month on the She Built This podcast, the theme is accountability. And I first got the idea for this theme from that Taylor Swift song, It's Me, Hi, I'm the Problem, It's Me. And as I thought about it more, I thought like accountability was the perfect word to sum it all up and tackle the concept. So we're going to dive into accountability and what that really means, because yes, people are difficult. Life happens. Things happen outside of our control. People do things to us. But at the same time, there are things that we can do too to take responsibility. And a lot of that is just like choosing how we react and how we respond. I'm actually going to give you kind of a funny recent personal example, and then uh, I'll tie it back together and we'll wrap up. Back in March, my husband was dog sitting for my sister-in-law in New Jersey, and he was gone for what was supposed to be 10 days straight. He was watching their dog uh, in New Jersey and then was going to go to Virginia with some friends. And when he was away, a giant nor'easter rolled in, and I'm talking like massive. Um, some people told me that they only got like three or four little inches of snow, or it was just rain, but here in Temple, we we got hit with like 40 inches of snow and it was heavy and I was home alone. Now, here's what is exactly wrong with this scenario. Uh, number one, my power went out and we have like one of those like crank generators. So like think of like a jet engine going off in your driveway, like for days on end or like it's kind of like a lawnmower powering your house. Like if you don't know what a generator is because you're lucky that you you're lucky enough to live somewhere where you don't need one. Uh, number two, like I said, the snow was really, really heavy. And after shoveling it for like six hours, it was just like a futile attempt for me. And there was just no place to dump it. Uh, problem number three, I had a tree down in my driveway. So the plow wouldn't stuck, uh, plow me out. And I was like stuck in, which was just like frightening and scary. Um, and then number four, by the end of day one, the generator had been running all day and it was like running out of gas and I had no idea how to like turn the thingamabobby to pour the gas in and I was also like getting to a point where I was a little too weak to like pour the actual thingamajiggy into the manabi dobby. Um, so circumstances were just like majorly out of my control at this point. Um, I was really overwhelmed and eventually like when it came to snow removal, I had to give up because my arms and my back, like I just couldn't have lifted another shovel full if I tried. But what I could choose through the entire 60 hours that my power was out and this whole entire experience was my response. And I will admit that at first I felt my feelings. They were not fun feelings. Uh, there were definitely some tears of overwhelm and fear. But then I realized I had to take action and I had to take some steps. And so I got somebody to remove the tree. I incessantly texted the plow so that they would come back and tend to my driveway so I wouldn't be snowed in. I walked to my neighbor's house to ask for his help pouring in the gas. And then throughout the whole experience, I just really tried to make the best of it and stay as positive as I could. And when it was all over, I was really, really, really happy with the way that I chose to respond. It was good character building exercise. Let's just say that. And I think that even if things got worse, I'm, I'm hoping that I still would have had like been able to roll with it. Um, I, I just have to thank also my husband for like pretty much talking on the phone with me 24 seven and for people who checked in with me during all of this, because I might not have been able to stay so peppy and been able to laugh at it all if that had not been the case. But it was a really real time uh, intense example of exactly this. And I think that this applies to our lives too. Like we don't always get to choose what gets dumped on us and how and the circumstances that we're in. 
But when we see that it's happening, we can then choose how we want to respond, how we want to be accountable in our actions for what happens next, basically. And so like, even if the situation doesn't turn out how you wanted or expected in the end, you can know, you can rest assured that you did your very best. So I think after this episode, That's going to be one of my personal steps to working on, like, I don't want to be a difficult person. I want to be less of a difficult person in life because I know I can be. When she was talking about complaining, I was like, check. And when she was talking about looking at our patterns and habits, I was like, I should be doing that. Maybe we better not look at my patterns and habits. But being accountable to ourselves is a really, really great place to start. And asking ourselves, like, how can I show up my very best? If not for somebody else, for yourself at the very least. Like, if not for someone else, for me. And so that's what this month is all about. All I can say is buckle up because next week's guest is going to be about all of these little things that we do to get in our own way and block ourselves from success. It's going to be a good one. Don't say I didn't warn you. And I will see you next week, my friend. To learn more about She Built This and to join our community and get involved for yourself, visit www.shebuiltthis.org.